Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 192 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we discussed traveling with technology and shared some of our latest thinking and tips on that that topic. Interesting that that episode got a lot of mentions on Twitter, so I, I think that was a popular episode and had some great information. In this episode, we take a look at 3D printing, a technology that is growing by leaps and bounds has, has recently gotten our attention. We think it should be on your radar as well. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report, we'll indeed be talking about 3D printing and whether uh, whether those printers have any potential use in the practice of law. In our second segment, we've got another question from one of our great listeners. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, let's talk about 3D printing. I will admit... Dennis, when you suggested it for the podcast, I was a little bit concerned about how we were going to talk about this. It's not. It's, it's again, kind of an out-there topic for lawyers to be talking about. So what got you so interested in this topic? Well, I think one thing is that we do want to be out there in front of where lawyers are, are, are looking. And so 3D printing has been around for a while, but I was uh, recently at uh, my old college, Wabash College, uh, for an alumni weekend. They did a symposium on technology and the liberal arts, and I spoke on AI and law, which was a lot of fun. But uh, one of the other speakers was a, a professor at the college who talked about 3D printing and the 3D printing lab they have at the college and gave a lot of examples and showed some of the things they were doing and how it worked and how they were using it in education and some other uses that that I thought were great. And it made me feel that 3D printing was a lot more accessible and easier to do in some ways and that you could really accomplish some cool things with it in, in ways I hadn't really thought about before. And so naturally, I thought this could be a potential topic for the podcast. And so I'll, I'll give some examples as we as we talk, Tom, but that's what got me interested. And it just seems like, uh, you know, it's one of those things, once you see 3D printing somewhere or any technology somewhere, then boom, it's like everywhere you turn, you see it again. So all of which is saying that I haven't actually 3D printed anything, but I held a bunch of stuff that had been 3D printed in my hands and got a lot of great ideas. So that's, that's what got me interested, Tom. I don't know what you've seen of 3D printing in your own experience. So here I'm going to ask you a question first before I talk about this, because I think we're both being honest. We haven't 3D printed anything. It's not something that we are doing in our current jobs or that we have the, we've gone out and bought the material or the, the hardware necessary to do it. But when you held that stuff in your hand, you know, I always imagine to myself that stuff that gets 3D printed lacks substance. It doesn't have a weight or a heft to it. It just feels like it's this lighter than air thing. I mean, did what you felt that was printed, did it feel like a real thing that was being done? I mean, was it, did it really have substance to it? 
Oh, totally. I mean, it felt like, you know, a plat- so one of the things was like a small Tyrannosaurus Rex head with the, you know, like jaw and the teeth. And it was like a plastic model. So it had some, you know, it, in the sense of it was like a, a model that you did or I did as a kid that you put together. So it had that level of substance. There were also boxes and, uh, you know, trinkets of different kinds. They do this kind of cool thing where uh, at the college they just 3D print these plastic red W's that they give to high school students who come for admissions, you know, just this little souvenir trinket. So it was kind of interesting, all the different things they did. But yeah, a number of things were like plastic boxes and stuff that had real strength and durability to them. Well, we're going to talk about some more, uh, I guess, more, even more substantive things that 3D printing can do. But I I wanted to address real quick your comment earlier about not appreciating how accessible 3D printing is. You know, in in looking out there at the world of 3D printing, all it took for me to understand the accessibility was the fact that you can buy a 3D printer on Amazon for 200 bucks. And that shows how accessible the world of 3D printing is. And I think we're going to talk about it a little bit more. But maybe, I don't know, maybe it makes sense to talk about what 3D printing is, maybe define it first, you know, give a a quick definition. So since I tend to usually be the definition guy, I'll give my first uh, attempt at it, and and then you tell me where I got anything wrong. 3D printing is also known as additive manufacturing. And the reason that is, is that regular manufacturing usually creates things by taking things away through drilling, through machining. It takes things away. With 3D printing, you're actually adding layers. And so the official, you know, one of the definitions online is is that 3D printing are processes that are used to create a three-dimensional object. Okay, that makes sense. In which layers of material are formed under computer control to create an object. And so it's actually adding specific layers to create that Tyrannosaurus Rex head or that particular box that's out there. Um, what surprised me when I looked at the research is that there's actually about 500,000 3D printers out, but the market is expected to grow to over 5 million 3D printers in just two years. They're thinking that by the end of next year, there'll be a 2.5 million and there'll be over 5 million in 2019. So this is a, an area that that even though it's been around, I think, I think that the first 3D printer was invented or was created way back in 1980. Um, but it's amazing that just now it's starting to explode. Yeah, so I think the additive notion is great. So on the Tyrannosaurus uh, head, it took three hours to print. So you just imagine like one layer at a time, you know, that's that's going on. And they did a time-lapse movie of that to show how the head sort of just appeared, you know, over time. But it basically took three hours too. So you imagine these very, very thin layers. And, and that's sort of, uh, I think, as you go up the price range in the 3D printers, that ability to print smaller and smaller layers is important. The other example, uh, or the other analogy is the glue gun. So it is there is a sort of extrusion process. So you imagine your, uh, your inkjet printer, but it's printing rather than ink, some kind of plastic that gets heated up, and then that cools into these layers. And then there's a whole bunch of different materials that can be done, including foods. And uh, Tom, I know our audience will be as happy as you and I are to know that they can do really cool chocolate prints now that people may find on cake decorations and stuff now. So it's an incredible variety in what you can do in 3D printing. Well, not only is there a variety in um, the materials that you can use, but what's interesting is, and this is another 
indication of how accessible it is to the average person is that you know you might you might be thinking okay so maybe I can go on Amazon and buy a $200 printer how am I can actually print something. Don't I need something, you know, an object to print? Don't I need some sort of computer file? And that's right. Um, there's there's actually modeling and, and computer modeling that does this, but there are tons of pre-made 3D print files that are out there. And they're uh, maybe not all free for the taking, but there are so many out there, 2 million things you can actually print yourself today on a 3D printer. And I think that's actually really exciting that it's it's not something that you know, I think probably there are, if you want to do your own thing on it, it's gonna there's a little learning curve. But if you just want to get started and take a look at some of these, I think that's really interesting. But the other thing that it, I think is interesting, and, and you mentioned lots of different materials, and they're applying it in so many different industries. Healthcare is a huge one. They're doing prosthetic devices. They're actually creating tissue. They're working towards being able to actually print organs um, in the healthcare. And then automotive industry, making parts and things like that. It's really kind of amazing the applications to which you can put the 3D printing. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about prosthetics because that was one of the coolest things that I saw in, in this presentation. So the college was participating in a, a charitable project, and they were printing prosthetic hands for children. And so the point of that was that, first of all, there's a staggering number of like thousands of kids who lose fingers or hands to lawnmower accidents and primarily, but in other things like that. And so if you buy like the regular or you get the regular, you know, prosthetic, kids outgrow them really quickly. And so what they were doing as part of this charitable project is they print these kits, basically, so they get assembled. And it's this prosthetic hand. And it has, you know, the ability to do some movement and other things like that when it's put together. And then it's no big deal if a kid outgrows it because it, uh, it costs $10 to make and they sell them for like $25. And it's just the coolest thing about 3D printing. And these hands were like different colors and stuff. You could see, you know, how they would be great for kids. And it was sort of like a way that, you know, people could do something of value uh, with the 3D printer as they're learning it and trying to, to figure out uh, what it is that they do. Tom, I want to go to to the materials, sort of the, how it works. And there are these chemicals that are chemical materials, the glue types and the plastics and those sorts of things. And things do get heated. So this is something if you want to jump into an experiment, you need to be concerned about safety because there is heat. There are fumes. Uh, some of the fumes are uh, dangerous. Some of the chemicals are a little dangerous and have to be handled carefully. So things will get better as uh, you know time goes along. And the the presenter again, the professor said that probably it seems like every other month they're coming up with a new material that you can you can print with, including you know plastics with metal in them. So there are you know some as opposed to the typical like hey get a new smartphone and just use it like a 3D printer or plug in your printer and use it you probably have to you know be concerned about ventilation and safety and not getting yourself burned and and that sort of thing so uh, a little bit more complicated and that's why i think these get associated with the maker movement where people are really trying to do things so the robotics movement other things like that is where you find this strong interest these days in 3D printing well, I want to come back real quick because you were talking about the prosthetics and 
that kind of um, reminds me of what I think are the benefits of 3D printing. Some of the things that make it a real leap in how things are being manufactured these days. There's really three benefits that are really kind of big in my mind right now. The first is, is that because it's based on an editable computer model, it has endless customization possibilities. Your prosthetic example there, in most companies, it's incredibly complex and expensive to create a prosthetic limb for a patient that's customized to their body if you do it in 3D printing, it's a whole lot cheaper because it's just that one that's been customized to them. And then I think that what we're seeing in some manufacturing industries is it's really a reduced time to manufacture stuff. You know, when when designers look at something, they no longer have to put it through a prototype and go through this complex process where somebody else machines it and builds it. They can print it and see if it works and start iterating on it and dealing with it right then and there, which means that it's faster to manufacture them. But you're right, there are a number of safety and environmental and other considerations that you need. But I kind of wanted to talk about the basics is that if you really want to get started or, or if you're thinking about doing something like this, what, what are the things you need? Obviously, the first thing is the hardware, is the printer. Uh, like I said, there are printers on Amazon for $200. The ones that and there are a number of, uh, of websites out there that rank some of the better printers that are out there. I think that most of the best printers are somewhere in the range of $700 to maybe $4,000 if you know for the kind of personal consumer-based uh, 3D printers. And I am amazed to say that most of those are actually available on Amazon, or at least a lot of them are. I was, I was, it was easy to kind of find them. Like Dennis mentioned, you need some kind of material to print that on, uh, whether that's filament, which is the thermoplastics that get used, or some other product or material, you need that. And then you need some level of software. One of the tools that you need for the software tools that you need, in addition to the modeling program, is what they call a 3D slicer. And think if you think of a printer in the standard sense that a regular printer prints on individual sheets of paper, what a slicer does is, is it takes that 3D model and it cuts it into slices and it, it slices it so that the printer can interpret them a slice at a time and print them. So it's essentially putting it on individual pages and then creating that as a slice each. And, um, and then again, if you don't have a model, again, there are over 2 million models out there on the internet, but if you need to build something your own. That's kind of where it gets complicated because although there are a lot of free modeling software tools that are out there, it's not something you can just dive into and start creating your own 3D models immediately. There are you probably would be, you know, well off to take a class online or do some tutorials or look at some places where they can teach you how to use the modeling software because it, there is a learning curve in, in trying to do that. Yeah, I mean, I sort of have the sense that if, if you have a teenager in the house, this is like going to be the best way to learn, mm -hmm, just kind of mm -hmm. turn them turn them loose. And I guess the other thing is the 3D printers are typically what they call SLT files. And to me, I just think of those as like patterns, you know. So that's the 3D right. uh, drawing and the instructions it runs through the slicer, which you think of as the software, you know, and then it, then it goes to the printer. And then the, the printers, you know, the cost is going to relate to like how easy they are to use, how sophisticated they are, how thinly they print, you know, all those sort of factors you can see. Software will do the same same thing. So how accurate do you want the, the model to be will factor in. So 
my professor buddy was telling me that the $200 3D printer is really for the hobbyist, you know, because it does come to you as a kit. You need to assemble it, and it's probably going to take, you know, a fair amount of work to set up. So um, there are a number of ones, and you can, as time as you said, there, there are a number of great articles out there of reviewing them, telling, you know, what type of printer might be appropriate for what you're doing. My sense is that sort of mid-range, as you said, maybe in the, the sort of 1200 to $1,500 range or $1,800 range might be like if you're really serious where you end up at. But I found an article on uh, 3D printing on a site called makemode.co. So just go to makemode.co slash learn hyphen two hyphen 3D hyphen print. Really good summary and and a place to start, give you a a good range of some of these things. But I think, Tom, that that gives people a background of of what's going on with 3D printing. I don't think it's that sophisticated a concept, but I think it's the applications that, that can get really interesting. And so that brings us to how might lawyers actually use 3D printing? So usually when you and I have this conversation, I start approaching this from a litigation standpoint because I'm a litigator by training and that's usually where I go. And I think that in my mind, um, 3D printing is ideal for the world of litigation and for creating demonstrative evidence. A number of years ago, my mentor, the person who was most instrumental in helping me become a trial lawyer, um, one of the best trial lawyers in the state of Texas, he went to trial on a medical malpractice case where um, someone had, had actually done a lung transplant and had taken out the wrong lung, the healthy lung. And throughout the entire trial, he used a toilet paper roll, a cardboard roll to simulate the lungs. And he actually won the trial with doing that. But just imagine how interesting that would have been to be able to create a printed lung and be able to show it. If there are products and product liability cases, you know, when you want to show what something looked like either before it was damaged, or if the original isn't available to be able to print or show um, a, you know, get a model, we see a lot of times where people create 3D models that you can show on a computer screen of a product that's been damaged or something that's happened to it. Imagine being able to give it to the jury and let them hold it in their hands and and see what it looks like. And I think really any object in a case that you might ordinarily show in a picture um, that you just don't have it, I think 3D printed instead, I think that's an ideal use of it. That's to me, I think kind of the highest and best use right now. But Dennis, I know you always come up with some creative ideas for 3D printing. What are you thinking about? Well, I I think demonstrative evidence is just the obvious thing. And then the accuracy of of that, we'll we'll talk about maybe what ethical obligations people might have on on 3D printing. But but I think that you can get something that you can actually put into jurors' hands. That that could be just really, as you say, time of a toilet paper roll can move a jury, then just think what a really accurate model that jurors can pick up and can use would be. I think in other areas of practice, you could uh, actually make models to explain things, you know, so say in a medical malpractice case, just with the client meetings or, you know, working with an expert or, you know, you could do some other things uh, in other areas of law, maybe in patent, intellectual property areas where you could illustrate some things and, you know, just create some models that would just help you explain concepts. I think there's a great use, as as the college was doing, of uh, just printing out logoed items, you know, so for marketing. So you could do these 
cool things that you hand out to people and uh, and customize them, you know, even personalize them for clients. And then then I think I would also expand out to say I could get involved in 3D printing in, in actually a, another really interesting way, which is to get involved with the, the maker movement and sponsor events where people are doing 3D printing, donating uh, printers or, or money to schools or, or getting involved in what's going on in the 3D printing world in your local community. And so let me let me interrupt real quick, Dennis, for those in the audience who may not be aware of it, give us a 30 second description of what the maker community is. So the maker community is is sort of, it's grown up, I would say, the last 10, 15 years of, of people who really want to make things. So as we move to more digital and that notion, there's a feeling there's a loss of some of those skills. So people like to figure out ways to make things. And, you know, robotics is one example, but people are doing all sorts of different things where they're trying to create older technologies, doing new things. But I think robotics is probably the best example of, of what I consider the maker world that will be most understandable to people. You're talking about kind of ethical issues regarding this. You want to cover that before it's time to wrap up kind of on how to get started with this? Yeah, so I, I think that there is this the the idea that uh, we have a duty to keep abreast of relevant technology. So I think as I like, so I like to look at technologies in that light to say, okay, is there a way that in my practice, 3D printing could be a relevant technology? And I would say, if I'm in litigation, I sort of think that it is because of the possibility for demonstrative evidence. Obviously, if there's a case that actually involves you know, somebody getting hurt with doing 3D printing, then you're going to have to learn something about it. But I think that in that demonstrative evidence, so you're going to say, I need to understand, like, how would I get that evidence in? Like, what do I have to show about the software? How would I criticize the software that's being used, you know, to create the model? Uh, do we have to get agreement with the judge on how that's created? So I can see in a number of instances, especially in the lit in the trial litigation world, where this could become, in my mind, one of the relevant technologies that you do need to keep up with. And I just think it's as a, a new technology where you say, I'm not really sure that that makes any sense, has any application to me. I think it's useful to look at it through that ethics lens of technology competence. I agree. And so, you know, I think that it's one thing to keep up with it, to keep kind of understand where things are going and how it might be used on behalf of clients. But let's say that um, there's some folks out there who have more of an interest that really want to maybe get started with it. I think I've already given away my best tip, which is, you know, go and, and try out a hobbyist uh, one of the hobbyist printers online, get a 200 or $500 printer and just start playing around with it. Obviously, be safe with it. Go and take some of the tutorials. There are a number of sites. We'll try to put some in the show notes where you can learn how to do this. But that's kind of where I would think I, before you jump into it by buying a $4,000 printer, uh, spend some time uh, in your garage or in, in some other safe location uh, trying it out with less expensive materials. What about you, Dennis? Well, I would say if you're in a you know certain cities, probably certain cities of a certain size, you may look at schools as well, but kind of see what might already be out there where you can you can see or maybe use something or have somebody show you what's going on. There's certain, I looked in uh, in St. Louis. It looks like there are definitely some places where you can do 3D printing as a service, so you wouldn't have to actually buy your own printer, but you could uh, have something printed for you. That's clearly another 
another option. And, you know, this stuff is not perfect. You think of it, you're using hot plastic and it's being extruded through something like an inkjet printer. I mean, stuff's going to get gunked up and, you know, frozen up and stuff like that. So for sort of the more hands-on techie you are, the more appeal this is going to have. So the other option I would say is like, can you use a service or go to a place that makes the use of time with the printer available where somebody can, either you or somebody can print that for you. That would be my thought, but I, I think seeing more of it, there's there's a lot of uh, YouTube videos, other things out there. There's online classes, so you can definitely explore it, but I think kind of seeing what it is that is now, that now people are generating would be the most helpful, and that will get the creative juices going and the ideas going. So I don't know, Tom, let's look into the 3D printed crystal ball, if you will. Do you think uh, we're going to see more 3D printing in the legal profession in the next two or three years? So I think it's possible, but I think that what I think is more likely to happen is that maybe we might see some entrepreneurial legal services companies come out with a offering to, uh, you know, companies that in the past have provided diagrams of the anatomy. Instead of that, let's print that anatomy for you. And so I sort of view that the uh, legal services company will probably jump onto this uh, before lawyers do, although we will probably no doubt see some innovative lawyers trying it in their practice too. But I I think that, again, we tend to be a little bit uh, uh, cynical of lawyers racing to adopt technology. And I would guess that like in most things, it will lag behind the rest of the world. Yeah, but it's a great opportunity, I think, for people who really get this and kind of see the potential benefit of, especially, as you said, time in the in the trial setting. It's just... Uh, could be really interesting in presenting a case to a, to a jury or to a judge. And before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. Well, we've got another question, but no audio this time. We really like getting the audio questions, so be sure to send yours in. Let's go right to the question. Will the two of you be buying the new Apple HomePod and reporting back to your listeners about what you think and whether we should buy one? These HomePods seem to be a little expensive when compared to the Amazon Echo and Google Home. Tom, you basically, I think, have every type of headphone and speaker system known to man. Do you have a HomePod on your uh, your wish list? Well, you know, I, I like to take the position that I buy all of these things so our listeners don't have to. But um, I think that this is going to be a tough decision for me because there's a lot to like about the HomePod. I will say, it personally, the name is not one of the things I like about it. They could have gone for a better name than HomePod, frankly. But it is what it is. So um, what I like about it 
it is. I like that they're trying to find that sweet spot. They say that tools like the Sonos speakers provide great sound but aren't very smart, and tools like uh, the Echo and the Google Home um, are very smart but don't provide great sound. So they're trying to hit something right there in the middle. Great sound and smart, and and that's why it's a little more expensive. It's going to be, I think, $349, which is uh, considerably more than the Google Home and really more than, than the Echo as well. I'm intrigued. One thing that may prevent me from getting it is is that um, you know Apple tends to require you to live in their world and to use their products uh, if you want to use certain tools. And if if the HomePod has that and it, it's really just going to be you need to use an iPhone to access it or an iPad to use it, I might be less likely uh, to want to use something like that. I might try it. You know, I've I've ordered the Amazon Show, the one the the Echo that has a, a screen on it. I've ordered that because I'm intrigued. To to see what an Echo with a small screen on it would look like. But I am, I I guess the other thing that makes me a little bit skeptical is that in most competitions or challenges between the Echo's Alexa or the Google Home, and she just woke up when I said that, uh, cancel Alexa, uh, in most competitions between Amazon and Google and Siri, Siri comes in a very distant third. It just isn't very smart compared to the other two. And so I'm not sure that the high fidelity is enough to bring me along unless Siri really gets better and smarter. I think it's hard for Siri to be smarter because Siri values your privacy. And by valuing your privacy, it captures less information than either Google or Amazon's going to do it. So um, there are some direct benefits to that, but um, it's definitely not a smarter device. So I've been kind of blabbing on along. I guess my answer is undecided. Maybe but um, I still haven't decided yet. We've got until the end of the year, so I've got some time to start lusting after it. Yeah, I guess the good thing is we really do have to the end of the year. So my thinking is that when I talk to people about the Echo and how much I like it, the one thing I always say is it's not like the world's greatest sound system. And so that was the the immediate appeal to me of, of HomePod because I was like, wait, if Apple's really working on the sound system, and then you look at this as a platform again, which ultimately all of these things are, that's what I find most exciting about them. And you say they've really focused on the, the high fidelity sound and you have a, you know, a smart device, then maybe I could do things like surround sound and shaping sound and things like that that could be really interesting over time and and it so becomes more of a you know like a nice piece of stereo equipment with great sound and so you use it in a different way than you'd use the amazon echo which becomes you know to me sort of more functional provides sound when you need it but not not like audiophile sound so that becomes interesting and then you say well this is another platform and we'll see where that goes. So I could see that for me, I could have both, you know, with the the HomePod being sort of the center of a living room or entertainment system and used for certain types of things, say in connection with TV, sound, and maybe maybe limited questions that I would do. Whereas the Echo might be in another place in the house where I would ask different types of questions in different ways. So that maybe the Echo becomes more of a kitchen device or a bedroom device or, you know, some, something like that. And the same with, with Google Home. Now, I don't know that I would do all three, but I could definitely see uh, doing two of these. And, 
And so that's that to me, I think, is the appeal of the HomePod. As you say, there's sort of with Apple, I'm more in the ecosystem than you are, Tom's. But I, but I think that you sort of say I, part of what I'm buying is access into the ecosystem and the platform. And that's what's going to become really interesting. I mean, to me, the greatest thing about Echo, and I was talking about this in the presentation I did on AI last week was that I've had the Echo for, it seems like two years. I've never updated it at all in terms of hardware, but it gets smarter and smarter all the time. And that is kind of like a new concept in technology that uh, that I really like. And so that's kind of the appeal of the HomePod uh, for me. Now it's time for the, our parting shots, that one tip website or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So I want to talk about a new site that I'm starting to explore called Got It, G-O-T-I-T, just Got It. And what they're trying to establish is the idea of knowledge as a service, or at least what they're calling knowledge as a service. And what they want to do is, is they understand that there are people out there who know about certain things. They want to empower those people to trade their knowledge with others, and they want to use AI chat sessions to start doing that. And so they're rolling out a service called Got It, and there's Got it study for STEM learners um, who can talk about algebra, geometry, trigonometry, calculus, a lot of the math and science subjects. Um, but there's also a Got It Pro that is for professionals in business or technology who have questions about how to use software. Right now, they have tools open for both Microsoft Excel or Google Sheets. And what uh, if you go to the page there, it says, get a free expert session within 10 seconds. Just post your problem and an expert will help you solve it instantly. So the sample question on here is, I'm trying to find the sum of column B, but only if it has the yes value in column A. How do I do this? Connect me to an expert now. Um, I'm intrigued by this. I haven't tried it yet, but um, I think it's an interesting application of artificial intelligence and connecting people who can solve problems. Um, I think that the problem-solving thing is nothing particularly new. The method in which they are kind of connecting people to these experts is new, and I'm interested to try it out. So uh, if you are, at least right now, in Google, uh, Sheets or Microsoft Excel, and you got a question about how to use it, maybe Got It can help you solve it. Cool. So my parting shot time is is about printers, but regular printers, and how over time we sort of seen them as security issues. Um, so sometimes they keep more information or they reveal more information than you expect. And sometimes if they're connected to the internet, they may provide ways for hackers to get into your system. So one of the things that's been in the news lately is, uh, and there was an example of someone leaked a document and then certain printers, and I think it seems to be fairly common though, as best I can tell, this happens with color laser printers, print some small dots uh, onto a page to help identify where the printer that they came from. And so Electronic Frontier Foundation has a, has a great uh, article on this called Printer Tracking Dots. Back in the news, they also have a kind of a, a primer on uh, the printer tracking dots so you can understand them. But the idea is that uh, through these, these yellow dots, you can identify the printer where something came from and then identify, in this case, probably the person who leaked it. So just one more thing you need to be aware of, and to go back to that notion of technology competence, uh, understanding what your printer is revealing may be one of those things that's a relevant technology for you. 
Well, you know, what was really interesting about that story about the person who leaked the document to uh, the news source, I was listening to a a report that basically said that the news source uh, wasn't very smart in protecting its own source because they went ahead and provided uh, essentially an original copy of the printed document, which allowed the government to use the tracking dots to find the person, or at least that's, that's the supposition here, and that if they had either copied the document on another copier or had typed it out entirely differently, then maybe this would have had an entirely different result and the source would still be anonymous. So uh, I think really interesting uh, how technology kind of led to, uh, to the person who leaked that document, or at least it appears that that was the case. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. And please, please, we love answering your questions in our B segment. So please, Go to the Legal Talk Network website, submit your audio question. We'd love to answer it in a future episode. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, smart ways to work together from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report only on the Legal Talk Network.